0: Something we share is that we're both early risers. You rise when and you do
2: what? Well, I I rise a bit before four. This is Apple CEO
0: Tim Cook being interviewed by Axios reporter Mike Allen in 2019.
2: I like to take the first hour and uh, go through uh, user comments and then I go to the gym and uh, work out for an hour because it keeps my stress at bay.
0: And here's how PepsiCo CEO Indra Nooyi described her routine in a 2011 interview with CNBC. What is a day like for you?
1: A day like I wake up around 4, 4.30 in the morning and I read, I read newspapers and I read my mail and documents for the day. I usually come to work around 7.30, 7.45, I'm in the office.
0: Between 2008 and 2011, several studies came out that found that super early risers, and we're talking real early, like 3.30 a.m. early, earned higher grades, were more likely to anticipate problems, and more often exhibited desirable character traits like optimism, stability, and conscientiousness. Entrepreneurs organized meetup groups around the U.S. to hold one another accountable to waking up before the sun. In 2016, the Wall Street Journal declared 4 a.m. to be the most productive hour of the day. Not every success-defined celebrity has hopped on the early morning bandwagon. Media CEO and sleep evangelist Ariana Huffington called out these early morning productivity tips as bullying people into starting their days at unreasonable hours. In 2019, she wrote, At some point, the morning routine became more than just a way to start the day. It became a craze, a fetish even. The morning routine has become ground zero for FOMO and self-judgment. The message is bleak. Everyone else is happier, healthier, and more productive than you. What exactly are you doing with your life? Ariana's right. Success in modern culture is often tied to our relationship with time. A ruthlessly efficient schedule is often seen as a special kind of virtue, a saintly steward of the clock. But when we're rolling out of bed at ungodly hours or filling our calendars to the brim, Are we really acting as masters of productivity, or are we slaves to the clock? This is Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. We tend to think of time as a universal and natural fact, but it's actually a very human construct, constantly evolving alongside changing cultural contexts. And different groups, from religious organizations to governments to corporations, have fought for millennia to control time, to control what we as individuals and as a society should do at each moment of the day. In this episode, we track the evolution of time from a sacred space to a capitalist tool and think about what it means to manage our time when we've become so comfortable with time managing us. Humans first related to time by noticing changes in themselves and their surroundings. The sun rose and fell. The moon waxed and waned. Seasons came and went. Bodies aged and died. Early communities associated time with the sacred and cosmological. They used natural time signifiers, such as sunrise and sundown, to mark the beginning of rituals and ceremonies. The first technology to try to organize and measure time was the sundial, it first emerged among the ancient Egyptians and Babylonians. At first, the sundial was just a stick in the ground that cast a shadow. The position and length of the shadow would tell you very roughly what time it was. Eventually, the sundial became more accurate and portable, and spread across the ancient world. Its rapid spread didn't go completely unresisted. The comic poet Plautus complained in 195 BC,
1: The gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish ours. Confound him, too, who in this town set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. When I was a boy, my belly was
2: my sundial, one more sure, truer, and exact than any of them. Nowadays, I can't eat or even sit down unless the sundial says so. Sundials
0: weren't just used to mark mealtimes. They were also used to establish sacred time. Times for prayer. Times for worship. Times for sacred ritual outside of common tasks. In the 8th century AD, Muslim caliphates began using sundials to regulate salat, or the five required daily prayers. Muslim scientists updated sundial designs with lines to indicate times for individual prayer. On some Muslim sundials, in fact, these are the only lines shown. Other faith traditions appointed sacred times that fell outside of sunlit hours— for example, in 834 AD, the Catholic priest St. Jerome wrote a letter to his followers about their religious obligations to pray five to six times a day, at specified times as early as 2 a.m. These stringent prayer schedules instructed Christians to wake up in the middle of the night and then again early in the morning before sunrise. If you recall the children's nursery song Frere Jaca, it tells the story of a Catholic friar who overslept his matins, the midnight or very early prayers for which devout Christians were expected to wait. In order to fulfill these religious obligations, Christians needed clocks that could operate accurately at all hours of the day, not just when the sun was out. Luckily for them, a French Catholic monk named Gerber of Arillac was up to the task. In 966 AD, he invented Europe's first mechanical clock. It used weights and a pendulum and rang a bell at all the times his fellow monks were supposed to pray. For this achievement and many others, Gerber of Arlac would go on to become Pope Sylvester II. Mechanical clocks spread across Europe. By the 14th century, clock towers were prominent time technologies in most central squares, and the pealing of bells organized social life. Just like in Western Europe, Islamic communities also use sound to signal the times of prayer. And these prayer times were used by everyone to schedule their day. Ahmed Raghab, a professor of science and technology studies at
1: Williams College, explains how sacred times structured social life more broadly. These cities were very much multi-religious, so there were a lot of people who were not uh, Muslim, But the existence of this call to the prayer coming at particular times from the major mosque in the city sort of created clear markers for um, how people deal with their time. So someone could say, I'll meet you after the noon call to prayer. It doesn't mean that I will go to the prayer. It doesn't mean necessarily that I'm Muslim, but it means that we will all understand that there is noon prayer and we will hear it and therefore we can manage our time based on that.
0: Sacred time markers changed the way that people experienced time, as well as how they structured it. Calls to prayer blocked off different groupings of time—before prayer, after prayer, during prayer. Sacred time reinforced the concept of scheduling, of planning and coordinating tasks inside and outside of designated hours. For believers, life was a gift from God, which meant that time itself was a gift— But that gift of time came with responsibilities. You had to use your time well, to use time for worship, and to use time for good works. After the invention and adoption of sacred timekeeping devices, religious leaders increasingly pressured citizens to use their time efficiently. That careful time management was a religious virtue.
1: So, one of the more famous um, and very prophetic traditions, or maybe proverbs, that were very common. Commonly cited in the medieval Islamic period, is that there are two blessings that people are oblivious of uh, free time and health. Within the same context, we see another layer whereby the idea of being busy is actually something that is very much prized.
0: Productivity as a religious responsibility echoed across traditions. In a commentary on rabbinical scholarship, the great medieval Jewish philosopher Maimonides said, It is a
1: fundamental principle of Judaism, that a person should occupy himself in this world with one of two things, either with Torah, to perfect his soul with its wisdom, or with an occupation which contributes to the general welfare of society, such as a trade or
0: business. The way a person structured their time said something about the kind of person they were. To be productive and efficient was to be virtuous. Time was a finite gift. The ways in which you spent it Reflected your values and relationship to the divine. Catholics, Muslims, and Jews all believed in the virtue of time management and productivity. But it was Protestants who took that belief to an entirely new level. The Protestant Reformation began in Germany in the 16th century and spread throughout Northern Europe. It heavily emphasized the need for each person to individually work out their salvation with God. You couldn't just coast along with your community and expect to make it to heaven. Here's the English Puritan church leader, Richard Baxter, writing in 1673.
2: Use every minute of time as the most precious thing. Oh, where are the brains of those men that can idle and play away that time, that little time, that only time which is given them for the everlasting saving of their souls?
0: The minister Oliver Haywood wrote in Youth's Monitor in 1689. Time is too precious a commodity to be undervalued. It is the golden chain on which hangs a massy eternity. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, urged his followers in his homilies to, quote, redeem the time, saving all the time you can for the best purposes. In his essay, Waste Not, the sociologist Max Weber wrote,
2: For a Puritan, waste of time is the first and in principle the deadliest of sins. The span of human life is infinitely short and precious to make sure of one's own election. Loss of time through sociability, idle talk, luxury, even more sleep than is necessary for health, six to at most eight hours, is worthy of absolute moral condemnation.
0: A culture of hyper-productivity and extreme time efficiency was believed to be necessary for salvation. It was also conveniently very compatible with a new economic culture that was emerging in the 17th century, capitalism. Capitalism was born from the new global trading routes of colonialism, chattel slavery, and the financial innovation of joint stock ventures, like the British East India Company. It accelerated in the 18th and 19th centuries through the Industrial Revolution, which changed not only how people worked, but also how they thought about time. The English historian E.P. Thompson observed that in rural or pre-industrial societies, workers were task-oriented. They thought about time in terms of how long it took to complete a certain task, like plow a field or cook a pot of rice. Task orientation carried a certain mindset toward time. There wasn't as strong a sense of urgency or the need to try and do things faster. Tasks take as long as they take. But in Britain... This attitude shifted alongside the changes caused by the rise of capitalism. It's not hard to see where this shift happened. Factory owners needed to hire laborers to produce goods. Workers weren't simply hired to complete a given task. They were hired for a certain number of hours. Those hours were measured with the technological precision that a clock affords. And in those hours, employers wanted their laborers to try and complete as many tasks as they could. Factories, with their ability to mass-produce goods, showed that tasks don't just have to take as long as they take. If it is possible to complete more tasks in the same amount of time, an owner can increase his productivity and his profits. The shift to time labor brought a new sense of time's potential, its ability to generate more and more value, so long as it was used wisely, so long as it wasn't wasted. No wonder, then, owners developed all kinds of techniques to squeeze more profit out of their employees' time. Strict schedules, careful surveillance, timesheets kept to the minute, and pay deductions for every minute spent, quote, loitering. It was grueling, and life for factory workers could be overwhelmingly difficult. You could be fired at any time. There were little to no workplace safety measures. Holidays and weekends were non-existent and it was common for young children to be part of the workforce. But eventually, the push to regiment your day by the hour, to make it more productive, spread beyond the schemes of the bosses and walls of the factory to be a value some people willingly embraced. And if there was one patron saint of this new spirit of time productivity, it was Benjamin Franklin. In his autobiography, Franklin shared his daily routine. He divided each day into six time blocks and assigned them priorities. The first block, from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., included time for prayer. But Franklin dedicated most of his waking time to work. His obsession with work was partly because he believed that being unproductive with your time was like letting gold coins slip out of your hands. In his 1748 essay titled, Advice to a Young Tradesman, Franklin wrote, Remember that time is money. He that can earn ten shillings a day by his labor and goes abroad or sits idle one half of that day. Though he spends but sixpence during his diversion or idleness, it ought not to be reckoned the only expense. He hath really spent or thrown away five shillings besides. Franklin saw time virtuousness as a holy trait, but he completed the ongoing shift of the focus from worship to work. Where the daily clock bells once called monks to prayer Now they called capitalists to their profit-seeking tasks. In this new age of capitalist time, time must be used, saved, and spent as productively as possible. Capitalist time preaches that the most pious thing you can do with your time is to make money, and the most sacred parts of the day are the hours spent at work. Time was money, and money was holiness. These attitudes of capitalist time underlay the transformation of the settler colonial American economy from a primarily agrarian one in the 18th century to a modern industrialized economy by the end of the 19th century. No surprise then that it was in Auburn, New York in 1888 that the employee time clock was invented. This clock recorded when employees came into work and when they left, allowing employers to standardize time management and maximize time use on the factory floor. In the late 19th and 20th centuries, the majority of Americans' lives were overseen by factory clocks, which dictated when they worked and when they rested, when their time was their own and when their time belonged to the job. Even Americans who weren't on the factory floor were bound to capitalist time. In the 1983 book More Work for Mother, the scholar Ruth Schwartz-Cohen chronicled how the introduction of household time-saving technologies like the washing machine and the vacuum cleaner paradoxically pressured late 19th and 20th century housewives to cram more productivity into the hours of their day. Take a listen to this Hoover vacuum ad from the 1940s. Peggy had a lot to do, but she liked doing it. The ad tells the story of a middle-aged married couple, George and Peggy Bates. Early in their relationship, they had lots of time to entertain, thanks in large part to their handy Hoover vacuum.
2: The Hoover was constantly in her hand, and it helped make time for a game of tennis a cup of tea with her mother?
0: After two decades of marriage, George and Peggy's relationship goes stale. But when Mr. Sutton, the Hoover salesman, visits, George and Peggy learn all about the new model, which includes all sorts of new features. With this shiny new Hoover in hand, the Bates clean their house as it's never been cleaned before. With no chores left to do, they invite over some friends.
2: And there we leave, George and Peggy. But ladies and gentlemen, for you are concerned in this too, this film is about time. Time saved by Hoover. Time for women to devote to leisure. To their children. To their husbands. Remember, it's about time.
0: Eighty years after that Hoover ad, our obsession with time efficiency has only intensified. Dozens of articles have documented the rise of what's called hustle culture among my generation, millennials. Hashtags like Rise and Grind, Hustle Harder, and Thank God It's Monday capture the spirit of this new culture, in which, supposedly, people don't just work longer hours, but often publicly express that they love those longer hours. There are different reasons why this culture exists now. Some have to do with need. Compared with boomers, millennials have less wealth, more debt, and less job security. Hustling and side gigs are often necessary to stay afloat. But another reason is that thanks to smartphones and social media, there is a new visibility to one's work life and new social payoffs to making that work life visible. Leisure and consumption used to be the way that elite classes signaled their status. Now it's through being consumed, through devoting yourself to work. As journalist Ben Tarnoff put it in The Guardian,
1: In the New Gilded Age, identifying oneself as a member of the ruling class doesn't just require conspicuous consumption. It requires conspicuous production, the public display of productivity as a symbol of class power. Tarnoff cites the
0: extreme work schedules conspicuously advertised by CEOs, 100-hour work weeks, 4 a.m. wake-up calls, and so on. Being the right kind of busy is the status symbol of our time. It shows you are important— in demand. The ultimate prestige product is no longer a watch or a car, it's the worker herself. And the more hours she works, the more prestigious she must be. And of course, in capitalist time, working more hours doesn't just make you more prestigious, it makes you more virtuous. Time use is a virtue, which means the most virtuous thing of all would be to make the best use of time. In popular parlance, to optimize it. Self-optimization is the unending quest of millennial hustlers around the world. There is an imperative to maximize every moment. Whole websites are devoted to life hacks that promise to help readers find shortcuts in living to free up time. Such an attitude can make you think about grocery shopping and cooking as big wastes of time. Why chop onions when you could be working? No wonder gig apps have exploded in popularity across the world. Apps like Instacart, TaskRabbit, Dunzo, Swiggy, Postmates, DoorDash, Uber, Meituan, and Eleme. With the push of a button, we can make food turn up to our door, make personal chauffeurs appear in our driveway, and with Amazon, make almost anything arrive for delivery, fast. With Amazon Prime and Amazon Prime Now, you can get one-day delivery, same-day delivery, and even one-hour delivery in some locations. Here's how comedian Ronnie Chang described our shopping habits in his 2019 stand up special.
2: In America, never leave your house. Land of the free and land of never leaving your house. No item too trivial. No quantity too small. To be hand delivered into your home like an emperor, anything. Anything in the world that comes to mind, any fleeting thought you have while drunk, anything. I want one pen. I want one, I don't want a box. I want just one pen. I want it in a box with some plastic. Throw some napkins in there. In another box, in a bigger box. More, more prime. Can't get enough prime here. We need it Prime. We need Prime harder, faster, stronger. Faster Prime. Prime now. Prime now. Two hour delivery. Prime now. Give it to me. Now. When I press buy, put the item in my hand. Now.
0: Our digital apps make us feel as though we're almost magically controlling time and space to make goods and services appear when and where we need them. But in reality, we save our time by taking it from others.
2: There are cases
1: where that work is being done either at such a rapid speed or is being presented to the end consumer as the magic of artificial intelligence that you literally have the erasure of the human value in that equation.
0: This is Mary Gray a senior researcher at Microsoft, and a faculty member at Indiana University. The on-demand tasks negotiated through our apps are the basis of the gig economy, a market that uses technology to match consumers and suppliers for flexible and temporary tasks. Our digital apps require a huge on-demand labor pool. These are gig laborers who deliver our groceries and seamless orders, drive our Ubers and Lyfts, and pack our Amazon shipments. And the faster we want our tasks completed, the harder we make their jobs. Several former Amazon warehouse workers described their work conditions in the 2020 frontline documentary, Amazon Empire.
1: You have security cameras right behind you at all times uh, that are looking at you uh, 24-7. And if you don't meet standards or their rates, you're out the door, you're just disposable.
2: Every worker has a scanner at all times that basically track exactly where you're at.
1: And they have a little... Blue line at the bottom of the screen, and it has like how many seconds that you have to have it done by the time it hits zero. And it puts you into panic mode. And pretty much you can't talk to people, you can't be in the same aisle as them. You just constantly have to sit there scanning like a robot all day long. We're not treated as human beings, we're not even treated as robots, we're treated as part of the data stream. While
0: the gig economy promises greater agency and flexibility to employees who can work at any time, low wages and high competition for commodified work often mean that gig economy employees end up working all of the time and in dangerous, time-strapped conditions. Time, marketed as a flexibility, ends up as the ultimate manager. Gig workers are so badly in need of hours that they don't stop working, even during dangerous conditions like the pandemic. Paul Kelso interviewed one of these gig workers in 2020 for Sky News. A man with a van is one of the
2: engines of the gig economy.
0: I make about 80 to 90 deliveries a day.
2: But those behind the wheel, like Ed, often self-employed or on zero hours contracts, can ill afford to stop work for coronavirus.
1: I would self-isolate
0: just, you know, to do the right thing. But no, it it worries me more, more not being able to earn a living because You know, we can carry on working and we may not catch the coronavirus. Um, it's It's a gamble. But at the end of the day, we still have bills coming in every month. During the coronavirus lockdown, many news sites like Forbes and The New York Times responded to the new conditions by featuring articles on how to stay maximally productive during the pandemic. This is the end logic of hustle culture, that even in the face of a global health and economic crisis, the priority is on self-optimization. Perhaps now, when our vulnerability and interdependence have been made so clear, is exactly the time to rethink what we are optimizing for. Instead of filling every crack of every day with something useful or productive, we could become more comfortable with doing nothing at all. With just experiencing the wonder and mystery of existence. To really just be grateful for life itself, especially after so many lives have been lost. Instead of self-optimization, we could optimize for others. When mapping out our daily and weekly schedules, we can plan for our plans to change. We can build in room to be interrupted, to make ourselves flexible and available for people who need us when they need us. Instead of always putting work first, we could try organizing our time around sacred things, whether that is God, family, friendships, art, nature, education, or whatever else deeply sustains you in the communities you care for. If it helps, you could even try imitating the medieval monks and set alarms for regular connection to the sacred, time for prayer or meditation or serving others. Maybe that means setting clearer and firmer boundaries around work times, or maybe it means getting a different kind of job that gives you more control over your time, even if it means getting paid less we may eventually start to feel that instead of constantly pushing against the boundaries of time, feeling that there's never enough, we in fact have abundant time if we just learn to live differently. Because our time is ultimately our life. And when your own time comes to a close, what will matter to you most won't be the hours you spent hustling to get ahead, but the moments you preserved for beauty, transcendence, and love. This episode is produced by Maria Devlin-McNair, Shireen Hamza, Gilly Vidan, and Adriana Krasniansky. Ministry of Ideas is produced at Harvard Divinity School by Nick Anderson, me, Zachary Davis, and Maria Devlin-McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I want to encourage you to listen to an absolutely wonderful Hub & Spoke podcast, The Constant. In each episode, host Mark Chrysler weaves together history, science, and humor to reveal the lovable and not-so-lovable foibles of humanity. And I'm not the only fan. Oprah Magazine recently said it's a show that will make you happier. So give it a listen and learn more at ConstantPodcast.com.
1: Hub and Spoke.
0: Audio Collective.